0: This is notoriously Episcopalian. My name is Kelly Hudlow. This is a podcast of sermons and musings, all about the Christian faith and especially about being an Episcopalian. This is a sermon for the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, July fourth, twenty twenty-one, offered at Saint Barnabas Episcopal Church in Roanoke, Alabama. The principal text for the sermon is Second Samuel chapter five, verses one through five and nine through ten. David becomes king of a united Israel. May I speak in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, which offer sort of continual readings through this part of the summer, are normally noted for their detail and drama that they create. The authors of these texts often give us sort of the internal monologue that's going on with characters. These are the books where we hear the drama of David being selected even though he was the youngest son and anointed by Samuel. We get the great story of of the defeat of Goliath by David. We get this long saga of this ongoing conflict between David and King Saul, where they play a bit of cat and mouse back and forth chasing each other. But then this morning, when we get to what is sort of the triumphal moment for David's story, we get just a handful of sentences. It seems rather anticlimactic when you compare it to everything that went before this point and what's going to come after this point and the story of David. Here, David finally is made king of all of Israel and it's noted that there was some bargaining and a covenant and oh, by the way, he calls this new city the city of David and then we move on to the next story. I think that maybe... When we think about what's to come next, we might understand why the triumphal moment is given such a short report that even though David will rule as the king over united Israel for 33 years, we know that the greatness that is this moment, David's reliance and trust on God that comes at this point is going to falter and that ultimately his dynasty is going to be short-lived. And so maybe a fleeting few sentences is all that needs to be there to capture a moment that's going to pass so quickly. Now, as we've read David's story through First and Second Samuel, we've read it in a way that it always points us to how God is working in the world in and through imperfect people. So in this scene of final unification of Israel, we can read the story that comes before it of David's political dealings, how he married the right folks and invited the right people over to dinner and made political deals. But what we really should be seeing in this story is how God took the boy shepherd and made him great and turned him into a shepherd king. Politics are certainly at play, but what we're supposed to focus on is that God unites the differing tribes of people, of God's people, and that God calls into existence the city that will embody God's dream for the world, which is Jerusalem. Now, any of us that have read scripture know that unity and relationship are sort of the standard MO for how God works, right? From Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Saul and David, all the way up through Jesus. It is all about how God has sought relationship with us so that we can then share that relationship with each other and be together in unity in the dream of God. Today is July 4th, right? This is the day that we celebrate the founding of our country, specifically we celebrate the Declaration of Independence, right? This is the foundational document that puts words and gives voice to what we hold together as the American dream. And oftentimes we focus that on to this statement that says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by God, their creator, with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? This is what we teach every child in school. This is the foundational ethos of our country. But... Today, we stand here also holding that here's this wonderful statement of the American dream, and we know that there's this long history of how we have not always lived into that dream. That almost from the moment that those words were written and spoken out into the world, that we were grasping after a dream that was too big for us to fully realize. So what do we do as Christians on the 4th of July? Well, in 1965, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King found himself standing in a pulpit on a 4th of July that happened to fall on a Sunday, and he went back to this foundational document that is the Declaration of Independence, living in a time in 1965 where clearly we were struggling to meet the ideals that this dream expressed at its founding, and King preached on the words from the Declaration, And found that in that statement that all men are created equal is the strong belief that it is built on the concept of all men being created in the image of God. And that with that idea, that the founders built this country on the fact that you and me and everybody out there is all created in the image of God, is how they could be so bold to say that we had inalienable rights and that we could be created equal, King said that this idea that somehow, quote, God had been injected into us, that is what made this founding of this country unique and that gives each of us worth and dignity. That even as we are failing to live up to our dream, Dr. King thought that it was marvelous that we had a dream to begin with. And that this dream, this dream of all men being created equal and this ultimate dignity of every human being should serve to forever challenge us and to give us a sense of urgency. To live in the midst of our isness, as Dr. King said, right? Our isness of falling short of that dream. To remind us of the oughtness of our noble capacity for justice and love and brotherhood. The dream of equality and brotherhood found expression in our earliest mottos of our country, right? This is another one that you should remember from history class, which is e pluribus unum, right? We put it on all of our money, out of many, one. It's a Latin phrase that by an act of Congress in 1782 was put on the great seal of the United States. Of course, in American history, the motto stands for the idea that at this founding on July 4th, when we claim the equality of all people, that 13 disparate colonies decided to come together, acting not just only in their self-interest, but in the collective interest to become a single country. That rugged individualists and great thinkers came together in unity. Now, the phrase wasn't original to America, right? It came in the 1700s. It was actually a popular tagline for a newly developing art form called a magazine that collected articles from many sources to produce a single issue, right? So out of many submissions comes one magazine. It's not quite as exciting anymore. But if we go back even further to where it originated, most people think it comes from Cicero. And that it's a paraphrase of a quote from him from the first century that says, when each person loves the other as much as himself, it makes one out of many. So there, snuck into our founding, put on our money, is the idea that the love of other is what unifies us. Now, Christians should sort of get this, right? This should sound a little bit familiar. Jesus, on the last night before he was arrested and crucified, sat with his disciples and said, I give you a new commandment that you have love for one another. Now, when Jesus was talking about that love of other, he wasn't talking about sappy, sort of you know greeting card kind of love. He was talking about a daring sort of love. The sort of love that when he sends his disciples out in the world and says, you don't take anything extra, no money, no change of clothes, no food. You're going to go out in love and trust and rely on the hospitality of strangers around you, even the strangers that may not get the message that you're there to offer. The kind of love that Jesus talks about that I think is the kind of love that Cicero really is talking about is that the kind of love that can hold us together in unity in spite of being betrayed or hurt, in spite of disagreement, in spite of different agendas or opinions, it's a love that just binds us together because it comes from God. This is a love that doesn't do away with distinction or individuality. It's a love that doesn't require uniformity of belief or always being in agreement. It's a love built on God, and it's a love that is the power to change the world. Now, Jesus, after he gives the disciples this commandment that they should have love for one another, he then says this prayer. That is a dream of God sort of prayer because at the moment it is uttered, it is impossible for us to live into it, right? He prays for his disciples that they will be one, right? That they will be one so that the world may know that God loves them and loves the world and can believe in what Jesus has come to do. And in the very next breath, after Christ has prayed for the oneness of his small group of disciples, Judas leaves out the back door to betray him. As Jesus says that prayer, he knows and will predict that Peter is going to deny him three times and that all of them are going to scatter In the utterance of those words, may they all be one, is the statement of the dream of God that goes all the way back to King David uniting the tribes of Israel, but still is just a dream and not a full reality. But still, God dreams on, even when we can't live into that dream. This kind of love that can make us one, that can hold us together, is demanding. It demands that we love our neighbor as ourself. It demands that we love our enemies. It demands that we love even those when we have been betrayed. It's the love that Jesus calls us to and that will take our individual brokenness and knit us together into a community of God. This is the love, as Apostle, as the Apostle Paul, a one-time persecutor of the church would call it, that can endure all things and hope all things. It's the love that endures the cross And destroys the grave. It is that love that we are given by God and it is that love that can make us one. So what as we as Christians should do on July 4th as we stand here and celebrate the founding of our country that was built on such big and noble ideas that so quickly remained only a dream and that we failed to live into. Well, in 1965, when Dr. King preached on this Sunday, after all the violence and hatred that he had seen in that tumultuous season in our country, after he the dream that he had proclaimed from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial about the dream of little black children and little white children being able to play together seemed even more impossible, King returns to the one thing that we as Christians should know, And that is that love is the way. King said, love is the only absolute. More and more I see this. I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Right now, folks on all sides in our country are frustrated with what is happening. There are folks that are ready to celebrate completely today and miss that we have not lived completely into the dream that is our country we have division and strife we have grief and pain coming out of a terrible pandemic we have injustice but many we seem to have forget the for many we have seemed to forget the dream that our founding fathers had of equality and that we have given up on the ideal of our unity so on the fourth of july for us christians Perhaps this is the day best observed by recommitting ourselves to the hard work of love. We hear in the story of David, not David's great acts that brought Israel together because we know that that is fleeting. We hear that a king did not unite Israel, God did. We also learn that in remembering the greatness of our country, we can also remember its failings, that the two do not erase each other, and that it is more important to hold the whole story together to be able to move closer to the ideals. But from the story of King David, from the realization of our dependence on God and the power of love that we are called to as Christians, we also know that there is no president or senate or court or politician or governor that can heal the wounds of our country. There is no one person or program or agenda that's the magic fix to whatever we find ourselves in at the moment. That it's going to take all of us, the many, to commit ourselves to love so that we can find our way in how to live into being the one that our country dreamed about at its beginning. So on this 4th of July, let us take a moment to say a prayer for ourselves and the work that we are called to do, and our country. Grant, O God, that your holy and life-giving Spirit may so move every human heart, and especially the hearts of the people of this land, that barriers which divide us may crumble, suspicions disappear, and hatred cease and give to the people of our country a zeal for justice and the strength of forbearance, that we may use our liberty in accordance with your gracious will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.